You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Grant Sabatier. I'm Bryce. Hi, I'm Christy. And this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. It's hard for me to talk about this. When my father died, when I was eight years old, I actually felt responsible, which was completely illogical. Why as an eight-year-old would I feel bad that my father died of something completely out of my hands? On the other hand, that feeling bad, that feeling like I was not enough drove me through childhood. It drove me through academics and sports. I became very good at building up goals and then meeting them and then building up newer, higher, and bigger goals. And this served me. It served me through high school and college. I went to medical school and did really well there and became a practicing doctor. And at some point in my life, I realized that these things, these goals that I had held out as so important were no longer fulfilling my needs. They weren't filling my cup. And just about that same time, I started learning about personal finance. And I realized that indeed, at least when it came to money, I had all that I really needed for the rest of my life. Instead of this bringing jubilation, it left me in a little bit of a quandary because who would I be for the rest of this life? I had done such a good job of building goals, surpassing them, and then building new goals that I was never really quite comfortable with this idea of just being without accomplishing. And those old feelings of not being enough after my father died came back, and I found myself more stressed and anxious than ever. Now, it's been a few years since I came to this realization, and since then, I've pulled back from work and found a way to be more comfortable even as I was achieving less, or at least achieving less in that old way in which I had defined it. But what happens after we no longer have these goals to anchor our identity? What happens in the days, months, and years? Will we find ourselves happy or miserable? And speaking of early retirement, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com, that's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com, and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter.
Bryce and Christy are the force behind the ever-popular blog Millennial Revolution, the writers of How to Quit Like a Millionaire, and were dubbed Canada's youngest early retirees at the beginning of their FIRE journey. Bryce, do you still hold the title or has anyone surpassed you? Not that I'm aware of, but that, yeah, I, I, I'm still a reigning champion. We're still a reigning champion, so yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, Christy, I know that there are a bunch of young guns out there trying to overtake you. Probably, and that's totally fine. Uh, but yeah, it's not really a competition. It's not really okay, a competition. Okay, it's totally a competition. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. always a competition. Yeah, okay. How, how's that anxiety going, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, now that you've done it, you've got to maintain the title. So there, there's a goal unto itself. After everybody who's about to retire, we have to kill them first. <laughs> that's one way of taking care of it. Oh, very healthy, yeah. Grant Sabatier is the creator of the ever-popular blog and platform Millennial Money. His best-selling book, Financial Freedom, was published in 2019 and continues to change lives today. Right before we got started, Grant, we were talking about the Financial Freedom Summit. It is now on hold. Is that correct? That's true. Stay tuned for some date in 2021 when we figure our way through this pandemic and it's safe for everyone to get together. It'll definitely happen, but what it looks like and where it'll be and when it's going to happen is completely up in the air right now. It's good to hear that because I know a lot of people were very excited about it. And as with everything going on right now, it's nice to think about it hopefully as somewhat of a pause as opposed to an end. So we're pausing some of our get togethers and meetings, but we're still really excited about getting there sometime in the future. Yeah, excited to have it. I mean, the nature of our relationship with money is continuing to change as both individuals and as a culture. And so I'm even more excited about finding the best way to support others next year in what's clearly an increasingly uncertain world. So I think the need for it, I think the desire, I think the hunger for it will be greater than ever. And we're going to find the best way to support people in having a safe event and inspiring event and what that looks like will probably be quite different than what we expected it would be. Christy Grant was talking about this uncertain world, and I want to take you back to the day that you retired from your job as an engineer. How long ago was that first? And second, do you remember the mix of emotions that was running through your head as you were leaving the office for the last time? Oh, yeah. So that was a little over five years ago, and it really shocked me because I thought that when I walked out of that office, I was going to be dancing my way out, giving my boss the finger and just skipping my way to freedom. Instead, I had a mini heart attack, like a mini panic attack. And it didn't really hit me until about 24 hours after I gave notice. I kind of went home and it was in the middle. I was in the middle of eating dinner. And then all of a sudden just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing with the rest of my life? And it wasn't about the money. I wasn't worried about the fact that I was going to run out of money. It was just like this loss of identity. And when we think about like the fact that I didn't really like my job and en- my, my engineering identity wasn't something that felt fulfilling, wasn't something that I dream, like grew up dreaming to be. But having that identity for 10 years, it was actually not easy to give up. So I was actually quite confused. I was very anxious and I didn't know what the future held for me. I think this is something that people don't really think about until they actually quit their jobs because you're just kind of looking forward to that day in which you can give your notice and just counting down those days. I actually had a calendar in which I was marking X's every single day until the last day, until free day of freedom. And it just, it really shocked me how much panic, how much of a panic I was in despite the fact that I didn't like my job. 
And we had done a ton of prep work too. It was like, it's not like we retired and there was just like nothing to do. Like we had been working on becoming writers and we had just gotten published like that year, our first book, which was a, a children's book called Little Miss Evil. So like we thought, like even with all that prep work, like we were, we were stepping from one identity into another because we had seen this coming. But you know how it is with emotion, like you, you, don't, you actually can't control how you emotionally react to things, right? It's just sometimes it just comes out of nowhere, even though you've done all the prep work, you still feel that, feel that fear. But it does go away after a while when you realize, okay, there is an identity for me to, to go into. Now, Bryce, I really relate to what Christy just said, because I, instead of having this immediate jubilation, felt myself a little panicked and fearful. You look more cool as a cucumber compared to Christy and I. Did you feel that sense of jubilation or were you also, did you have that moment of panic? The thing is, for me, it was uh, for me it was a career. It was a plan to be a career pause rather than a I will never code again, right? So it was like the plan was we go away. I do this. We travel around the world for like a year or two. She keeps writing. She starts. Uh, she steps into her writing persona and this kind of stuff. And then I'll go back and maybe form a startup. I'll maybe work for Apple or Google. It was just supposed to be like a one or two year kind of sabbatical for me. What I didn't expect was how much I would, we would enjoy writing together and traveling together and then doing that full time. So that was unintentional, but that wasn't the plan. So for me, it wasn't as big of a, it wasn't for me as big of a mental leap as it, as it is for you two. I love this term sabbatical. I've heard so many people use it. And what they really mean is I want to retire, but I'm too afraid to pin yeah. it down. So I'm going to call it a sabbatical and then I can just not return. And I've heard a lot of people use that term in that manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's what I kind of use to tell people, like, that to uh, assure them a little bit because they, you know, a, a lot of the Chautauquas or people write into us and say, like, I'm, I'm really, I'm feeling very afraid of this. And I kind of say, you're not actually, you, this is not a one-way ticket. As long as you don't literally punch your boss on the way out, like, try to leave on good terms, kind of thing. Kind of leave, you know, the door open. Give it a shot because if you don't try, you'll never know. And that, that helps a lot of people. What you guys are feeling over that anxiety is actually very, very, very common among the people that are doing the early retirement thing. But when I asked Pete about this Mr. Money Mustache at a Chautauqua, and we were like, we're all like, you know, that, that Chautauqua was in Ecuador, I think. And we were all like, the theme of that Chautauqua with all the people there were like, everyone's like afraid of pulling the plug, of pulling the plug, of pulling the trigger and this kind of stuff. And then I was like, Pete, how did you deal with that? Did you feel that at all? He's like, no. Nah. <laughs> it's just a Vulcan. He just feels no emotion. And you just kind of, but she says, I quit. I quit. And then you just never look back. So, so I think that, that that's part of the, the, that, that causes a little bit of the anxiety because Pete is seemingly so like fearless. So when we feel a little anxiety about that, this doesn't feel like safe and, and you try to like, get sympathy from him, he just, can't, he just doesn't know what you're talking about because he's just kind of like, I just did it, right? So it's like, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, I've heard Pete, I, I don't know if it was Pete or someone else who used this term wall of fear and has spoken about kind of how we get past that. Grant, let's talk about your experience a little bit. One of the joys of reading Financial Freedom is to watch you go from having a few dollars in the bank to being this highly successful business person. And one thing I've realized is, in a sense, you almost gamified the process. When I read about what you did, you made it into a sport. And I'm wondering when you finally made that decision to step away, was it bittersweet? Was there part of the game that you were letting go of? Well, so I reached financial independence also a little over five years ago. And even after reaching FI, it wasn't the next day that I unraveled my life because I remember feeling completely overwhelmed that I'd accomplished this goal 
but also completely burdened by the fact that even though I'd done everything I thought I was supposed to do, I had two business partners, you know, I had over 20 employees, I had over 50 clients, I had contracts with these clients, I'd built a successful business that the business no longer fulfilled me. I saw the business as a pathway to a lot more money. You know, I did the back of the napkin calculation and figured, okay, if I stick with this business for the next decade, you know, if all goes well, I could probably have a $10 million plus net worth. And I talked with my mother and I talked with my fiance at the time about where I was at. And both of them were like, you built this business. It would be so dumb of you to walk away. Why would you do that? And it was one of those things where it was one of the first moments that I realized that I was no longer growing, that I'd already sort of, you know, as you talked about, Doc G had accomplished that goal, just the act of building the business and saving the money. I'd done it. And so I didn't need to keep kind of going through the motions and more importantly, doing the things that I didn't want to do. And, but it still took me, you know, a year and a half, almost two years after that point to finally unravel myself from my business and, and sell it off to my partners and finally take that leap sort of into the unknown of fully letting go of that, you know, businessman identity. But money addiction takes many forms as we kind of talked about. And those, those sort of tentacles, those talons were, were, were in me for a long time. And I, I probably really, it's only been in the past year, year and a half when I feel like I've, th- those have released themselves. You know, it's like anything, you know, when you're running 300 miles an hour, it takes some time to slow down. And so it's taken me, you know, a good number of years to, to kind of settle into that, that space of not, of not knowing and being, you know, less, uh, I'd say less addicted to money in some ways. You know, obviously money is something I write about and think about. And so it, it, it sometimes seeing, seeing opportunities to make money, you know, can get pretty, pretty exciting and enticing. And oftentimes I have to say, you know, okay, those will always kind of be there. But maybe there's something else that you should be going after. Or maybe you should be doing nothing. And that's the biggest gift of my life is just giving myself permission to do less and nothing. And even when I really want to do something, I, I question myself now because I know um, how easy it is for me to get wrapped up and carried away. And it's the silver lining of this pandemic for me is I've actually rested for the first time in my life. And so that's been something that I've really needed and, and something that I'm very grateful for right now. So let me get this straight. This past year, Grant, this is you slowing down. This is <laughs> a book and running a financial freedom summit at the same time. This is slow down, Grant. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think you know these are these are uh, <laughs> you know you know it's all re- it's all relative. It's all relative, and I think the natural desire for most things, especially in the U.S., is just continue to grow at all costs, meaning build and scale and, you know, and and for me, I really didn't want to do the financial freedom summit. I've said that publicly before, but I just saw such a need for it and a hunger for it. And so I feel like that's more an act of service in a lot of ways than it is trying to build an actual business. But yeah, I, I, the book launch process, I think, you know, you all can, can share to this was, was more than anything, sort of existence validating and spiritually fulfilling than anything else. Just being able to participate in the conversation in that way. 
there's a lot more richness to life. I realized in being able to share what you know and have an impact on people that you'll never meet and never hear from. There's an energy there that I think I'm really into that as opposed to having to necessarily quantify everything or certainly, I mean, I didn't make any money on the summit. I wasn't going to make any money on the summit at all. And so that's one of those things where my previous life, I probably would have been like, okay, how do I get this to 10,000 people and make, you know, $5 million off of this thing? Christy Grant uses this term unravel over time, but clearly we are achievement focused people. How has your drive changed? Are you less driven? Do you think than while you were working a nine to five job? In some ways, yes, but uh, it depends. I'm driven towards different things now. So one of the things that happened as a result of becoming FI is that I'm more driven towards like building relationships, which is not something that I really had time to think about when I was working. It was really just like, get the money, pay the bills. You don't have time for friends. Go call your parents every now and then. And like work is the most important thing. So now the changing direction, like for me, it was, yes, the unraveling part, like, where do I go now? It's a fresh, you know, basically the canvas has been cleared. I'm painting on a brand new canvas, completely blank, and I'm starting over. But it, I thought it was going to be like that. But then it actually just ended up going in a different direction. It's like, I'm not even going to do a painting now. It's something completely different. Now I'm focusing on relationships. Now I'm building a community, which is not that direction is completely different. I thought like, maybe we're going to build another business after like start a business after we retire all these crazy ambitious projects that happen. And it really just happened. Some of those things like writing or like speaking at conferences that happen organically, but what I didn't think I would be driven towards was building relationships, which is not something that I ever had time for. Another thing that really surprised me about FI is the fact that my anxiety did not go away. I thought that, you know, once you reach that FI number, because we spent so much time reaching for that goal, you just think I'm going to be happy forever. I'm going to be a completely different person. I'm going to be perfect all the time. I'm never going to have anxiety again and everything's going to be perfect. Um, But you're actually the exact same person before FI and after FI. And you don't actually fix what, like who you really are. What happens is that you have the tools because now that you're FI, um, when you stress out and you don't get a good night's sleep, you don't go to work the next day and start the vicious cycle over and over again because you have no choice. Now, because FI is a tool, you can, I can actually, if I have like a stressful night, and sometimes it comes subconsciously, I have no control over it, then I can just sleep in the next day and then I can start the recovery process. So I think that has been just two things that I never expected. Anxiety is still there. And then you build on relationships, which is not something I valued in the past. Early retirement uh, comes in like there's multiple stages to it, right? At the, at the moment that you retire, there's like an emotional uh, moment in which you are just like adjust, adjusting to the transition. Then for us, there was about a six month period of, which, of just decompression. Like you don't want to do anything. Uh, that's during that period of time. We were just traveling all over Europe. We weren't writing. We were, well, we were, we were toying around with writing. Between six months and a year, you, you, you kind of get used to, like, you, you, you've relaxed, you've refreshed, and you've kind of, like, shaken out all the stresses of your previous job. And then you're at the part of your brain that starts going, all right, let's try to do something. Because right? everybody in this space is, there's no slackers in this space, basically. Everybody here is a, uh, everybody that achieves early retirement is a type A achievement goal-oriented person. So after that relaxation period, you kind of go, okay, what, what do we do now? And then 
we, you know, we built the blog, we built, uh, we built the blog first, and then we started working on the book. And like she was saying, all that anxiety, all that competitiveness that got us to the first million was right there too. We were those people for a while hitting refresh on Alexa, kind of saying, all right, we got to beat mad scientists. They're like, we're catching up. We're ca like, it was like, we were, totally, we were totally those people. And then the culmination of all that creative work coming in quit like a millionaire. And that was also the a point of peak stress. This happened almost exactly a year ago in July. Like when we were doing that book launch, she was like calling Grant and she's like, they're, you know, like, what if I'm doing everything and I don't know what, like, I'm doing all these interviews, but what if it's not enough? And then Grant's like, just calm down, dude, you are stressing me out. <laughs> so there's, so, so that was, I think, at the point when the pandemic hit, like, just to give an example of what our schedule was like before all this happened in January, we were scheduled to fly to LA, at, um, meet someone about, you know, we were going to fly to Australia, then fly to New Zealand. We're going to meet somebody from from uh, Warner Brothers and talk about possibly making a TV show. Then we were going to fly to LA, take part in another documentary. Then we're going to fly to Austin, do a Google talk. And then we're going to fly to St. Louis to do a talk for this guy, Grant, at his uh, Financial Freedom Summit. So it's like, it was like every like week there was something going on and we were, we were like, we were just like running ourselves ragged at that point because we were just like we just seemed more busy now than when we were retired. Because at least when we were retired, we had weekends. Now we did it, right? <laughs> then the pandemic hit. We were forced to kind of just figure out where our center was, like where our happiness was, because we realized we couldn't continue being happy chasing something. Because when you catch it, you just want to chase something else. And then we realized that's not a sustainable pathway to happiness. And then we kind of, so these past six months, seven months that have been trying to figure out how to be happy just being rather than being happy doing, if that makes any sense. You know, one of the things that I, I agree with, with both of you about the phases of early retirement. And I think we're taught often growing up that feeling scared and being uncomfortable is a bad thing but I've tend to find that the more fearful I am, the more richness exists on the other side. And often it's just illogical and irrational to even try to understand what that will be. And I think one of the challenges for me and I see for other early retirees to Bryce's point, you know, we're, we all tend to be organized and a little type a and super intense and we often, you know, what got us there was this very rational brain, you know, the dollars and the cents and the spreadsheets and do X and do Y and Y will compound into Z. But there, so much of life after Phi is emotional in the sense that I think the opportunity is to let go of some of that overthinking and transition a bit from the rational mind to the intuitive emotional mind and let yourself feel whatever you're going to feel, even if it's uncomfortable and sit in that and let that evolve. Cause it often takes our unconscious and our minds time to not only catch up, but to process. And, you know, I always like to say, you know, time heals fine. Like it, it, it heals well enough. And for me, a lot of life once, once I felt like I reached the edge of my thinking that I could no longer sort of think myself into happiness was when I felt truly free. And what I mean by that is at some point, there's a level of surrendering to life and everything that is that I truly believe is the only way to survive this crazy thing called life. And surrender doesn't mean just like put up your hands and do nothing. Surrender to 
realizing that you're not going to know most of these things that you seek to know and to double down on the things that you do. So as Christy talked about relationships, clearly relationships and love and the energy between people is a site of immense richness and feeling and emotion and should be invested in. That's whether it's your family or your friends or, you know, the other thing is doing deep reflective work on this life. I think that there is an immense amount of energy that happens when you share your true experience with others, not only in the outpouring of, of that writing or speaking or sharing your life experience, but even more so in the unconscious connection that it creates with others. And so I think that that's really valuable. But what, what I mean is I keep going back to this idea of just surrendering. You have to get to a point where you realize and accept what you do not know because it's the not knowing itself, which is the path to freedom. It's not the knowing. It's not have, it's the paradox of freedom where you think that I'm financially free and I can do whatever I want every day. But in reality, what I want to do is actually pretty simple. I want to be able to get up when I want to get up. I want to be able to walk my dog. I want to be able to read a book. I want to be able to like talk to my friends. But, you know, we have this idea that like having unlimited choices is freedom. But in reality, it's about having the choices of the things that you want to do, not having unlimited choices. And so that I think is often the paradox of freedom that I misunderstood. And that actually extends itself even to happiness, where you start to realize that, at least for me, happiness is no longer the goal. I can generally be happy, but it's often those days when I'm upset or worried or scared that tend to be a little bit richer because that that there's growth that happens there. There's, you know, it's kind of, I call it the juice of life for lack of a better phrase. And you got to get comfortable with that. I mean, it's like, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and not knowing because, once you realize that you don't know, that's when you start to, I, 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 you know, you feel freer because you can let go of all that pressure that you put on yourself to have it all perfectly kind of, kind of figured out. At least that's what's helped in my own life. And that just like anything else, it just takes time and you got to, you know, love yourself and try to have some good self care and, you know, just uh, smell the roses a bit. I think we're our own worst enemies in a lot of cases especially post-fi. Yeah, unlimited choice is actually, ter- is actually kind of scary. You get into this analysis paralysis thing where you're yeah. kind of like, I could do all these like 10 things at once. And that and we were just like, it, it, there's a mad scientist and I were talking about this early in his retirement where he was doing, like everybody goes through this where they just say yes to everything. And I'm going to do a blog. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to make a movie. I'm going to do a TV show. I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. And then you just ends up like pulling you in like all these different directions. And then you find yourself even more stressed because at least with a job, your job was well-defined and then you had constraints. <laughs> but when you're retired, you can do, you can do everything. Sounds like great. But like to Grant's point, it, you, being able to say no and being able to say like, this is not in line with what I want, with who I am and what I want to do is learning how to do that was, our, was actually pretty hard. And I talked about, I think we're just only starting to figure it out now. <laughs> Christy, it's an interesting point because you know, I thought early retirement was going to lead to less fear, and it didn't. I thought it was going to lead to less anxiety, and it didn't. Maybe a little bit less, but it didn't solve the problem. I thought it was going to lead to less stress, and in some ways, I'm a lot less stressful, but it doesn't mean I don't have stress in my life. For you specifically, what problem did early retirement solve, and is it, was it the problem you thought you had? 
So I was having an identity crisis. So one of the things that it wasn't just about the money, it was the fact that like, I don't want to be an engineer, I want to be a writer. So in that sense, becoming FI gave me the financial security so that I could pursue that dream. So that helped me immensely because if I had been trying to write and then do my job at the same time, like we tried that for many years and the income from the writing was never enough to actually cover expenses. So from that point of view, FI solved that identity crisis for me. However, it did not change me as a person. Like it didn't make me calmer. It didn't take, change me from a super anxious, competitive type A person to a relaxed you know, letting things go, go with the flow type B type of person. I thought that that was going to happen. It's like, you have everything taken care of. You don't have to worry about your finances. How are you not a Zen Buddhist monk now? Like that doesn't happen. It just doesn't. And what it did have, what it did help me with was because I found the uh, network of people that like-minded people through Chautauqua and through the fire community, what it helped me with was being like having people to reflect my thoughts and help me process what I was going through to understand how to deal with the anxiety and not even like fix it, but manage the anxiety, which is not something that was helpful before because my social, social circle, they were all just as stressed. They all had financial issues. They were all worried about work. So you can't have the blind leading the blind. They would not have been able to help my anxiety problems because they all had the same problems and they didn't have the space to actually work it through. So once I found that network and because I felt that support, because I felt that I could be vulnerable and, and share the struggle of anxiety and not have people go, oh, well, you're a millionaire. How could you possibly have anxiety? Like, go away. That's not a real problem. And just have that group of people um, be listening to you and then sharing that they actually have the same. We, we were so shocked. Like 90% of us had the exact same struggles. And then what came out of that was realizing that you need to learn how to be instead of do. And I actually, one of the things that was helpful, like Grant told me about reading Thich Nhat Hanh uh, about meditation. So that was one of the books that, that completely changed my outlook on life. And then just talking about what I read about with other fire people and realizing that at this point, you are choosing to like, if you are choosing to be stressed and you're choosing not to be happy because you're always thinking that you're not enough. So it was really like at this point, realizing that I have anxiety, I need to manage it. I'm not going to, I'm, I am the way I am, I'm not going to be a different person, accepting myself and just loving me the way I am. In the first half of the show, Grant, Christy, and Bryce talk about what it felt like to leave their jobs. After the break, we delve into post-retirement anxiety. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. 
That's LandRoverUSA.com. Want to learn how to manage your money better in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money, and best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com, that's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S dot com, and be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. You know, I, I also suffer from anxiety. I think it's sort of the epidemic of our time. I think that you know, being millennials, certainly the way we grew up with our parents and just, you know, we're kind of the, the ethos of anxious people because there's always something that we can be doing. And I like to say that because we grew up on the internet, you know, I had my first computer when I was like seven years old. It's like the internet never sleeps. So neither do we, there's always something that you can be working on or creating or doing or hustling. And I think that it's just this idea of the individual run amok. And what happens when you become financially independent it's actually the worst thing that can happen to an anxious person because you no longer have to work and work was a distraction from your anxiety. It also drove your anxiety, but it was a distraction. And so now you're forced to actually confront your identity or who you think you are. And you know, anxiety only exists in the present moment. It's how we're feeling right now. But anxiety has this way of pulling forward our fears and worries from the past and also our fears from the future. And so there's this an immense amount of uncertainty, as, as Christy said, in just being and existing. And the last thing you really want to do is give a smart person unlimited time and space to think. <laughs> and so it's like your anxiety can just get heightened where it's just like you wake up and you can do whatever you want, think whatever you want, be whoever you want. And so then you start thinking, okay, well, who am I and what is this and what am I really really afraid of. And I think a lot of it is just a very simple fear of death and not knowing how long we're going to be here and when we're going to die. And a lot of that fear of death manifests itself in so many other forms, not just like I'm afraid of flying or afraid of heights. It's like existing in this world is a very high frequency thing. It's like there's so many stimuli and so much energy, especially in this moment, that it's hard to hold. I mean, you look at people even look at the kids who are like in their early 20s now and the music they listen to and, you know, all the the benzos they're taking and like all of the younger kids like just want to like that their anxiety is even greater than ours. And so I think as a culture, you're just going to see that you know, move faster and faster as the world moves faster because our brains just can't keep up. I think we've reached the edge of our rational mind and there has to be an acceptance. There's a letting go that has to happen. And you just have to invest in the things that you love to do, like go work in the garden or ride your bike or do physical things or create as opposed to just um, anxiety is tough. I mean, I, I've struggled with it throughout my life as well. And the, the, the only thing that's really, truly worked for me, as I shared with Christy, is meditation and trying to do the work on myself of realizing there's always a world that's happening and a conversation that's happening that I can be a part of, but I can choose how to engage with the world. I don't have to let the world dictate when I participate or not. And so I find myself participating actually a lot less than I used to and thinking about how I want to participate and saying no is often 
the best way to do that? And often people will say yes all the time. It is the way reason you're saying yes is because it's affirming your existence. It's the world's like validating that you exist and that they see you. And so much of life is about wanting to be seen and loved and heard and feel connected that that you have to support that in your life. And that's why writing is so good. And I felt actually writing the book for me gave me that opportunity to connect on that level. And it was like a stamp that's like, people care, they're listening, they heard you, you shared what you know. And then that actually was a, it was a huge relief for me because it was like the world's like, I see you. And now I don't feel that sort of anxiety that I had before the book came out. To, to Grant's point of like the next generation is even more anxious than us and it's driven by like all the internet and people comparing to the, each other on Instagram and then, you know, TikTok and you're just looking at all these other people with these very manicured lives that are shown on screen and it's not really reality because they don't show the bad parts, they only show the good parts. And then everybody's just stressing out, comparing with each other and, and our society is very consumerist so it drives everybody to like have the next big thing to compete with each other. One of the things that actually helped a lot was actually being in Thailand. So I had read Thich Nhat Hanh as per Grant's suggestion, and we, were, uh, we had talked to our FI friends about meditation. And then we happened to just be going to Thailand the next month. And the thing that, that really is helpful for travel is that it kind of gets you out of that bubble because everybody thinks that where they live, it's the norm and everybody else around the world lives like that. And that's that's what it's supposed to be like. But because we went to Thailand and we went to a city called Chiang Mai and it's a Buddhist country and their culture is very much like, you know, appreciate the moment and live in the present. And just meditating in Thailand was the thing that really like pushed me to do meditation every single day. Cause I, I meditated on the rooftop of my condo with one of my FI friends every single day for an entire month. And that's when I actually started noticing differences in my thinking patterns. And that's never happened before. Like even medication, um, I was on antidepressants. I was on like medication to help me sleep. And none of that really helped me reach that level. It really was kind of getting out of that bubble and then seeing other cultures that is not so consumerist driven. They have like a spiritual aspect to it. And they actually prioritize that over consumerism that really got me to the next level. So I think sometimes it is also like stepping out of your comfort zone and then seeing that the way that you've lived your life is not the only way to live life and not everybody around the entire world is living your life the exact same way. Like take pieces, bits and pieces from other cultures that would benefit you. Like see things from other people's point of view. And then like for me, that that really was mind blowing, meditating in Thailand and then absorbing some of that like Buddhist culture and understanding the spiritualism behind it all. But it, was, it really is not just like a, a meditation is the answer thing. It really is like a journey. Like you have to be in the right mindset to accept it uh, and, and for it to give you the maximum benefits and this kind of stuff. Because if you are 40 grand in credit card debt and they're foreclosing your house tomorrow, meditation doesn't help, right? Med like that doesn't like, that's not the, that, that is not the right fix for your journey. We, we had, in order for you to get there, you had to first become FI then you have to uh, then you have to take on this identity that you're really comfortable with. Then you actually have to get validated in that identity, like the book did well and all this kind of stuff. And only then did meditation actually become the thing that actually gave you that inner peace, because it really is like dependent on all this stuff that we did before leading up to that moment for it to really kind of have the effect that it did. So you can't skip forward to just like just meditating everything will be fine. You have to do all that important work to lead up to it first. Grant, let me take this conversation full circle. I started by asking you guys what it felt like to step away from your jobs. But where this conversation has led is really to much more existential problems, stress, 
anxiety, what is happiness, how we live our life. And clearly, leaving employment itself is not exactly the solution. We focus a lot on early retirement in our community. Are we focusing on the wrong thing? Is the retirement aspect somewhat besides the point? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I always like to say money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. And so there's this really amazing Carl Jung, you know, the, the, the psychotherapist and analyst quote that says, you know, you spend the first, I think this is the quote, you spend the first half of your life serving your ego and building yourself up. And then the second half of your life, letting it go. And I think that that's the perfect distillation of this idea where in order to become financially independent, no matter why you're doing it, you have to have a different relationship with money than most people have. And then, you know, then your friends have, and then the culture has. And so you have to have a really intimate relationship with money and build it up and save it and optimize it. And then at some point you have to get to the moment where you realize that it wasn't about the money at all. And you have to figure out a way to let go of the money and letting go of the money is often even harder than holding on to it and building it up because it's so easy in life. And this is the thing about money. Why it's a, you know, I always like to say money is a form of energy. It's, 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 it's so much more than a tool. It's, it's alive. It's alive in your life. Your relationship with it changes, but as you're trying to let it go, that's when it like works even harder to put its talons into you and 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 because it's so easy to chase it's so easy to to look at a number and 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 base your your value in life on how much money you have it's harder to ultimately let it go but until you can start to let go of all of the things that helped you get to where you are there's no space for the you you've yet to become There's just no space. And the harder that you hold on to your identity is the harder that you're rejecting the inevitable, which is ultimately death, the end of life, no identity, non-existence, emptiness, whatever you want to call that. The thing is, the only constant in life is change. And so if you hold on really tightly to who you thought you were, there's no space for the you you've yet to become. So I view it, you could call it a religious problem or a spiritual problem. I think it's a human challenge, it's a human problem. And you often find that the people who are happiest in life are the people who are rolling with the flow, the people who don't take things too seriously, and the people who ironically are the ones who have very different lifestyles and tactics than, than what it takes to reach financial independence. So I don't think the goal is retiring early. I think the goal is becoming the fullest expression of what it means to be alive and a human in this moment, this remarkable moment of time. And so I think the goal is waking up, seeing things for what they really are, realizing that you don't have to be a wage slave, that you don't have to let your dreams and desires be driven by what you see on the internet or on Instagram or on TikTok. By the way, I think TikTok is like the stupidest thing (laughs) in the entire world. I got on TikTok and I looked at some of the personal finance videos. I was like, this is terrible. I have no faith in humanity and immediately deleted the app. But I was like, this is so terrible. 
but I, I was like, I have no faith in humans, but I, I really do believe that, that it's about the, the life journey of, of waking up. And we have a unique moment in history that other people haven't had. I mean, things like 200 years ago, we'd all be, you know, either uh, servants or social mobility wasn't possible. But we live in an age where, because there is so much amazing information, and I can't imagine like just like the hundreds of thousands of people that have read our books and are now living radically different lives and realize they don't have to make trade-offs and their lives can be richer. And so it's such a beautiful moment where life is so precious. This moment is so fleeting. There's so many other things to do than sit around and worry and, and be stressed because you're, you really have very little control over when, when you're going to die. You know, we might not wake up tomorrow. And so why, why worry about tomorrow when tomorrow's doesn't exist? And so I think it's about waking up living life, having a richer, fuller, more alive existence than it is about early retirement. I think early retirement actually is what the media have coined as being the distraction. And the thing is people can't, literally people who meet us even in person, they can't believe what I've done or what you've done, Doc G or you, Christian Price. They like literally, like even when you write a book and you tell them exactly how I did it and they meet you and they see it all, they still don't believe it. And so that's one of those things where it's like, it's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. And I, I it's like, don't, don't sell yourself short because the media is not going to believe you. The media is, the media is part of the system. You know, it's like, they're, they're part of the problem. They're not part of the, they're not, they're not trying to help you wake up. They're just trying to make money off of you and keep you afraid. And so remember that it's not about the early retirement. It's like, do you love your life? Do you feel alive? And I, I know very few things other than getting your relationship with money, right. And, using money ultimately to buy that space and time. And that's why it's so powerful. And that's why I think we all do what we do. It's interesting that the language of the people who retire actually changes over time because five years out, like uh, us and Grant, like, we, like the writing on our blog and how we talk like in person, we become more philosophical. There's more existentialism. There's more like, why are we here kind of talk and this kind of stuff. Whereas at the beginning, it was all about like, how do I get my money out of my 401k without paying a nickel in taxes, <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? So you can actually see the, the uh, for each finance blogger that comes online and then like documents their journey, that you can actually see their growth if they're successful, of course, through that journey and if they're successful out the other side of becoming as Vicky called Grant, a little Buddha. <laughs> Just don't take the easy path. That's the thing that I encourage people to do. Like I would say the ease and convenience are the enemy of financial freedom because it's one of those things where we often get so far in life, whether we worked really hard to become the partner in our consulting firm or a law firm or a doctor or an engineer, like the world is built on turning you into a more efficient sort of cog in a system. And so the easier, like it wants you to be comfortable and have things be super easy because then you don't question it and you don't make much noise. And so I always encourage people if they feel stuck, if you feel stuck in your life, that is all you need to know. You feel stuck because you are stuck. And the only way to get unstuck is to physically pull yourself out of it. So maybe your job is perfect and it's great and you're making a lot of money, but you feel stuck, quit your job, do something else. You're smart enough. You can always go back and get that job. Same thing. If you live in a place that you hate, leave, go somewhere else. You know, you literally have to like move your, if you feel stuck, it's because you are. And it's like a lot of these people are like, Oh, well, why do I feel this way? And they overanalyze it. And it's like, no, your body, your mind, your intuition, they're telling you that you're stuck. And that's all you need to know. Go do something else. Quit your job. That might be perfect. Maybe everything's perfect in your life, but maybe because it's perfect, you're no longer growing. 
And so if you feel that stirring in your life, that there's something, you know, it's like the Thoreau quote, most, you know, men lead lives of quiet desperation. And the reason why is because they feel like there's a lack. They're, they're not following their intuition. They're not taking enough risks. They're not, I mean, that's why I think, I don't think it's an existential problem. I think it's, it's more of a, uh, you know, it's, it's like the, the purpose of life to me is just simply to be alive. And so I think we often tend to forget that where the world's really not going to end if you quit your job or you move somewhere else or you take this other risk, like the actual, it's, it's, it's the not doing that. It's the, you know, becoming 70 years old and looking back on your life and being like, whoa, I always took the easy path. Often the easy path is, is the wrong one. It's easy because it's like, uh, you know, if it's easy, if, if you're not living your life a little differently than other people, I tend to find your life's just going to look just like theirs. And that, that's fine for a lot of people. But if you have that stirring, the one thing that you can do is just kind of jump, jump into it and realize that that's where the good stuff is. Christy, I'm sure you get hundreds of emails a year of people who are like, I'm 21, I'm in Canada, I only have five more years to leave my job, and I'm going to do exactly what you did. Tell me, how has your advice to them evolved? Do you tell them the same thing today than you would have told them five years ago at the beginning of this journey? I actually get a lot of people that relate to my mini panic attack about quitting. So I actually get a lot of emails uh, that say like, I did the numbers, they're totally fine and I should be good to go, but I still don't want to quit because there's an identity crisis. Um, and I think the first, like initially in the, in the past, I'd just be like, the numbers are fine, you're good. I know it's scary, but you're going to be fine and you're just, just do it. But now I'm more positioned because now we've kind of grown and we've had gone through the different stages of retirement and we've realized how important identity and the social network is. So now I'm more advising them to try to, like, if you're going to lose that identity, it's, it's, it's better to build a new identity or accept yourself or who you are and like work on that emotional aspect rather than just focusing on the finance. And also, um, especially for people who are single, because they don't have, like, for me, I'm, I'm quite fortunate in that I have, like, a partner, and we both retire at the same time, but that may not be the case for uh, many people. So if they're single, the things that they worry about is not having that social network, because now you don't have your spouse to talk to and talk about FI. Nobody else knows what the hell you're doing, because they're all at work. The friendships that you've built in for the past few years are all your coworkers. Now what are you going to do? So now it's more like I try to help them figure out that, that need for social activities um, and social connection and the need for like life satisfaction and having a purpose. It's not just about the security of finances that it would, it, it's a good idea to think about that way before you become FI and figure that out because you don't want to pull the trigger and then be like, Oh my God, panic. What do I do now? Position ourselves like the back people on the blog, you know, mass shit up. Because like everything, like in our head, already starting off in this whole fire space, I was like, everything can be expressed in a number, right? But then there's like parts of it that can't be expressed in a number, and that's the part that we're realizing. Oh wait, getting the math right and mathing shit up is like step one. Yeah, like Grad's holding up a sticker. I don't even know where you got that from. It says mass shit up. We didn't make it. I don't know where that came from, but anyway. It's from the fire. It's like that's like step one out of like the, you know, three or four or five things that you need to get right in your life before you can truly just, be, you know, just be. So, yeah, that's, it's a journey for us as well in how to like guide people that we're learning how to do that as well. Christy and Bryce Grant, I'm really just amazed at this discussion because I find it both exciting and disquieting. I find it exciting because 
what I really glean from what you guys are saying is you don't necessarily have to be financially perfect or financially independent or even close to start working on these really important of aspects of your life right now. In fact, almost those are more important than getting your money straight to an extent, right? You need enough money to live. You've got to get the basics. But after getting the basics, these are the kind of things that you'll struggle with. I'm excited about that. On the other hand, it's also disquieting because it's really easy to put this goal of once I have enough money, everything will be perfect. And clearly, we all are the same people we were before we had the money. And the only way we changed was by working on ourselves. Work that sometimes was exhausting and sometimes scary, putting ourselves out there, living in fear intentionally, things that we don't always like doing. So it's very hopeful, but I think the message also is that you got to do the work. And clearly you guys have learned, especially in retirement, that doing the work is what's really going to bring you that sense of contentedness or happiness. I like to end the episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Grant, what is going on and where can people find you if they want to hear more? I think I'm going to go brew another pot of coffee and go sit in my hammock and read the paper. I think that's what's up next for me today. <laughs> I'm trying to actually be an early retiree and do a lot less, which which I'm happy about. If you want to find me, check out, gosh, where should you find me today? What am I doing? Am I actually doing anything? Probably the best way to engage with me is just go to uh, Millennial Money and sign up for my newsletter. And, you know, a couple times a month now, I'm sending out sort of my thoughts on life. And so that's probably the best way to engage with me or read, read the book. And yeah, hit me up on Instagram at millennialmoney.com. And yeah, this is, this is good stuff. Thanks, thanks for, for having me on. I'd like to encourage people to think about whether what they seek, ask themselves, do they already have it? And that was one of the things that I didn't realize that so much of what I wanted in life was I already had and was right in front of me. And so much of the freedom that I was craving, I had very early on. Once I had $100,000 saved, I had all the freedom that I could have needed in the world. And I completely missed that. And so think about what you already have. And I'll see you on the interwebs. And and make sure that if you want to find Grant, you do not go searching for him on TikTok because he won't be there. Exactly. Exact, yeah. Forget TikTok, man. <laughs> All right, Bryce and Christy, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? Okay, so now that our schedule has been completely wiped clean, you're going to be in Toronto for the foreseeable future. We're fortunate enough that we have friends from the fire community and friends from Chautauqua that we're actually scheduling regular get-togethers now that the shutdown has eased and then we can actually have like a bubble of 10 people at a time. Uh, so that's been really, really, really great to like have these d- deep, richer uh, friendships and relationships that we can focus on. If you want to reach out to us, uh, you can find us at on our blog at www.millennial-revolution.com. And if you go to the Contact Us tab, you can find all our social media information as well as our uh, email. And uh, I think we just want to tell everyone out there who has anxiety that you are not alone. Because when I had anxiety, I was very afraid to tell everybody because I was trying to show this like, oh, I got this, like I'm going to be 
finishing all this with no anxiety. I'm going to be a perfect person. I'm going to do all these tasks and never have any problems. So if you have anxiety, you are not alone and don't be angry that you have anxiety and trying to get rid of it. It's just something that like it's, yes, it can be debilitating, but it can also be helpful. And it basically is the reason why it drove us to become millionaires in the first place. So there's two sides to every story. And I, I would encourage you to read books about meditation, uh, like Thich Nhat Hanh. I would encourage you to download the Insight Timer app, which is a completely free app to help you meditate. I've struggled for this for more than 30 years of my life. And I, I, if I can say that I can get here and I feel that I am enough, I, I know that one day you will know that you are enough as well. Yeah, you are not alone is, is such an important message. And I think that's one of the greatest things I learned from becoming part of this community is learning how to accept myself, learning how to accept who I was becoming and losing some of the fear of letting go of who I was when it didn't serve me. So I think it's a really important message. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Christy, Bryce, and Grant. That's a wrap. Here on the Earn and Invest podcast, we've talked about the pandemic from many different lenses, from many different viewpoints, but one we haven't discussed is the current housing market. My friend Dennis over at Full-Time Finance recently had the experience of selling his house during the pandemic, and of course, I imagine many of us have questions about what the market is like and how difficult is it to sell your house during a pandemic. So sit back and listen. This is my friend Dennis from Full-Time Finance, and he's going to tell us about what the real estate market looks like as a house seller. Hey, man, how you doing? Pretty good. It's been an interesting and uh, unique time period. Yeah, this has been a crazy time for all of us, and COVID has just changed everything. Everything from our children's schooling to getting health care and even things like selling a house. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, I just wanted to compliment you. Full-Time Finance is one of the blogs I found in the beginning when I first discovered financial independence. And it has been one of the ones that I consistently read. And I will tell you, as I create more and more content, I have less and less time to consume. So I don't read as much as I used to. But when I see something of yours come up on my feed, I'm always interested. In fact, that's what led to this conversation. So thank you for taking the time to write your blog. I know you've been at it for years and I've been watching. I always appreciate a reader and I hope people find some of the insights interesting. That's fulltimefinance.com, right? Yes, it is. Fulltimefinance.com. So let's talk about your most recent blog post. You sold a house, but this was not the typical situation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you were selling this house? Sure. So about early June time period, I discovered a family member um, who had fallen in their home. And that individual, not very trusting of the rest of the family, except for myself. And basically started the power of attorney process and determined that his house was not livable because of lack of maintenance. And he wasn't in any mental shape to go back to his home. So basically it ended up falling to me to figure out how to sell his home and use that to help him to move to an assisted living facility and otherwise. And also looking at this house that had massive repairs in need. And what do I go from here? Do I sell it? Is it even worth selling with all the problems it's got? What do you do? 
So let's break this down a little bit. You had two major challenges. One is you were selling a house in the midst of a pandemic. I should probably say even three challenges. One, you're selling the house in the midst of a pandemic. Two, you're selling the house for someone else who you are acting as power of attorney for. And three, the house was kind of a mess. This was, you know, when you see the listing and it says property sold as is, it was that kind of property. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the first things the realtor said was this is a cash only because you won't be able to get a loan because of the problems in the house. There was foundation issues, mold, everything you could think of. Everything bad. Sounds like a dream. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about this then. You know, you are facing what seems to be an uphill battle. Before we get into the difficulties of selling a home during COVID pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about what was the same. Were some things kind of basic, run-of-the-mill, straightforward, what you'd expect them to be? The basic parts, you know, you negotiate with a realtor for the right type of uh, rates for uh, selling your home. You always do this no matter what. If you're going to go with a realtor, you can sell by owner, but not probably not a good bet when you're trying to sell a place like I am to somebody who is an investor rather than a normal person just walking off the street. You're looking at finding the right listing price. You got to list that price right about where you want it. Because if you list too high, people run away. You list too low and people anchor on that price. And then when you get to negotiations, you end up being underpaid. So it's kind of that normal give and take of trying to figure out how to go about selling the house. Yeah, it's an important point. And most people forget that you can actually negotiate that original rate with the realtor. It's becoming more and more common, especially because there are more ways for you to list on your own now. And there are also more discount brokers. So if you're going to go with a traditional realtor, it's worth having a conversation. What is like 6% normal nowadays? Yeah, 6% was normal um, a couple of years ago. I think now is more in like the 5% range. We negotiated about a four and a half a couple other little things in there because it was a family friend, but four and a half or so. Yeah, four and a half. Four and a half doesn't sound sound bad. So there's some of these basic things you have to do. You have to fix the house up too, right? You talk about staging a little bit. Did you even bother to so try to stage? We this did house? not, and that ended up being a key situation to this. Uh, we did rent two long forty yard dumpsters and dump a whole bunch of stuff into two dumpsters. Um, but we got to the point where it was like. Do we keep going and spend the rest of our lives cleaning this up, or do we get it on the house housing market now, knowing how ramped up things are, and realizing, you know, a couple of years ago the house probably would not have sold or would have taken quite a while because of the market, but right now things are so kind of amped up. It was get it on the market as quickly as possible was kind of the message I was getting from the realtor. So it was better than it was, but it wasn't great. So that's a good segue into our conversation about what is different during this pandemic. I would have thought that you would be crazy to be looking to buy a new house during a pandemic. But what you're telling me actually is that the market is hotter than ever. So there's a lot less in terms of uh, volume of houses for sale because the eviction bans and other things. Also, just generally because of that. And there's a bunch of people that are looking to invest, uh, whether it be because they were looking for a place outside the market because the price is up, whether it be additional money from stimulus, et cetera. Combine the two and you've got a situation where there's more buyers than sellers. And just off the cup, talking to my realtor on the side, she's telling me that, you know, basically every deal that she's having come in is selling over listing price. 
Wow. Wow. And you, you really got to put that in perspective. This idea of getting multiple offers and going over listing price is something that we just don't experience all the time, especially now because there's been a little bit of an urban exodus, right? So if you're trying to sell a house in the middle of a big sprawling city, you might not be having the same success. But if you are in the more suburban or rural areas, you're finding that there's a lot of people looking. And this house was suburban, but to be honest, it's one of the markets that has not raised a lot since 2008. I mean, my own house hasn't moved much since I bought it in 2012. But in the last maybe six months or so, it's just gone crazy. I was talking to the realtor, and the other thing she's saying they're negotiating on is contingencies. You put in a contingency for a house, and one of the contingencies is getting financing. And they would have people putting in a contingency that um, they'll pay the difference between whatever the house appraises for and what they list just to make sure they get it. So their appraisal doesn't mean that they're not accepted for their bid. Wow. Yeah. And it, I've even heard crazy stories of people buying places sight unseen or not even bothering to get an inspection. Well, that was one of the interesting things. So they got, we sold this house as is, so no inspection or anything. And we get to the, uh, the table and with the folks that bought the house, they're nice people. They, they know what they're doing, but at the same time, they're asking me questions of things I would have looked at if I were doing buying a house as a fixer upper. And they're basically saying, you know, you basically got to move the day it lists and you don't have time to do those type of things right now because of the market if you want to buy a house. And <laughs> I don't know if I would have the heart for that, but they apparently did. Yeah, we'll get in a moment to the big surprise you got when you tried to cash the first check. But first and <laughs> foremost, we talked about the craziness of the market, the fact that actually selling seems to be easier than ever. What were the some of the other differences you noticed in the process since you were in the midst of a pandemic? What other th things did you have to do that were different? So in the very beginning, um, there were signatures and things I had to testify, you know, we don't have covid you know, I'm not going to hold them responsible if I get COVID from the realtor. Each time somebody visited, you know, there was also a disclosure for them. You know, they're not going to get sue me for having COVID or sue any of the realtors. And there's a whole set of forms for this, in addition to the normal disclosures you would fill out for a house. The other bit is that you actually have more liability because of the shape that house was in. If someone went in and hurt themselves on, let's say, some faulty stairs or something like that, we don't think about that when we're selling a house, but there is some liability there. Oh, yeah. So uh, one of the things that we had was a porch in the back of the house. Now, it's only a two foot off the ground porch, but it's collapsed. And basically, how do you keep people off that porch? Because if they walk out of the porch and they trip and fall or get their foot in, stuck in the wood or something like that, they could sue you. be honest, some of the law even says that they may even be able to sue your realtor or the realtor company. So there's kind of a gray area there, too. So you know, we're putting up like caution tape, you know, you're making sure that message says, you know, when they come in, you're signing, signing away that you're not going to sue. And they still potentially could in that case, but, you know, take every precaution you can, because there's some liability there. Were there any difficulties in the showing process? Like usually when you have a house for sale, you have things like open houses. And a lot of times you stack the people coming to look at the place. You're not worried about them running into each other, et cetera. Did you guys find that there were extra precautions that you had to take because of that? Oh, that's actually a funny story I didn't include on the blog post. Um, they put it out there and they were thinking there would only be a few viewings. And there were like 20 viewings in the first day and they forgot to put a gap in between the two sets. 
and the people were showing up at the same time and they had to quickly reschedule a bunch of people because it was just so many because they weren't expecting that volume of people to come in on the first day. And keep in mind, as I'm describing this, this is not a house where I would say, I really want that house. It's your dream home. This is a uh, investment opportunity, build it up, start from scratch type thing. So overall, as a seller, to sum up, it wasn't a particularly bad experience. It sounds like there were some things that were pains and annoyances, but it actually was the best time for you to sell and you had a lot of people interested. Yeah. Listed it on Monday and by Thursday, I had 10 offers and five of them were over listing. And by Friday, I'd made my decision and signed it. No contingencies at all. The uh, We actually had two bidders that were around the same price and we had them negotiate a little bit. And the ultimate negotiation contingency for us was I didn't want to clean up the rest of the stuff in that house. So one of them said, here you go. Here's a price over listing and you don't have to clean out the house anymore and we'll take care of it. Where do I sign? Sold, (laughs) sold. Let's flip this around a little bit. Uh, It sounds like it wouldn't have been so easy if you were on the buying side. So if you were out there looking for a new place, this is a little bit hectic of a market. Yeah, I've been kicking around the idea of investing kind of remotely in the south part of southern part of America. And I basically decided you got to wait right now, because if you're trying to do something, you can't move immediately, which I can't do the type of rigorous inspection I would want, you know, being far distance away, et cetera, you're not going to get the house. So really, if you're going to do it, you have to be right there and prepared to do it today. So just for fun, there was one small twist to the story. What happened with that first check? The uh, company that handles the title transfer has a security process that checks to see, you know, did the check get verified before they gave it to you? It's a Friday afternoon. It's COVID. Okay. Somebody forgot to fill that out. So Monday morning, I deposited a check over on Saturday and Monday morning I get in. Okay. I'm planning on putting this in a high yield savings account. It says available in the bank account. Let's move it over there. Monday afternoon, I log in and it says insufficient funds. That money has disappeared. I've just written a a hundred and some odd thousand dollar check to a a bank, online banking account, and it's all crashed. (laughs) Was there a moment of panic there? Oh, yeah. Heart just stops, you know, never bounced a check in my life. And here we go big. First time out of the gate, called the bank, called the um, transfer company called everybody and basically figured everything out and ultimately got another check sent to me overnight and then had to spend probably about another two or three days of calling various people and getting fraud alerts removed from the accounts that resulted from bouncing a hundred and some odd thousand dollar check. See, it was just too easy for you. There had to be a twist. Very true. It just goes to show you sometimes markets act funny and from the outset, we would all look at a pandemic-ridden time where people are staying in their homes, we're not interacting. You would think this would be the worst time to sell a property, but indeed, reality is much different. And in this case, there is a huge market right now for properties, especially if they're outside of cities. So if they're in suburban or rural areas, even if they're not in the best shape. Dennis, this is a fun conversation The blog is full-time finance. I really suggest you check it out. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. All right. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, guys. That was actually 
perfectly the conversation I wanted to have. Because um, I don't think we hear enough about, there's a lot of controversy, right? Should you retire early? Shouldn't you retire early? There's a lot of backlash against the actual RE part. And I actually think it's misplaced. I think people, have, there's a backlash because of financially things feel less secure, right? Than they did a few years ago. But I, I think we need to talk more about people who did retire early and are living successful, deep, meaningful lives and let people see what that means, right? Because especially Grant, you made this point. I think it's really important is you do have to jump into the uncomfortable a little bit. And by no means does retiring early mean that you're going to not ever make money again. It just means looking at things through a different lens. And that, that was kind of my goal is to talk about how it isn't nirvana, but it's also a big part of the growth process and that it's not per se a bad thing either. Because I, th- I don't think we hear enough of the pushback against the kind of, oh, retire early is bad nowadays either. I, I think it's, it's much more of a nuanced conversation. Yeah, everything's a nuance. Like, life is a nuanced conversation just generally, but uh, people, people, whether for anything, want a you know, simple solution. And you know, fire is not exactly a simple solution, but it's one that's possible to convey as like, oh, if you get this, you will be happy. But the real answer is, if you get this, that will be on your way to be becoming happy. But there is no one, like like with everything, it's a very nuanced thing. It's, it's, everything's a journey. And, uh, but like, if you don't figure this stuff out, you will definitely not be happy, right? Like if, you, if you're just constantly going into like credit card debt, you will, I guarantee you will not be happy. <laughs> but it's like, we kind of have to like tailor our message and to the readers because while the three of us can have these kinds of like existential debates about like a bit existentialism, most people are still like, how does the 401k work? Like that's the vast majority of people. I think we like, forget. I don't even know, I don't even yeah. know how to open we, one. We hang out like, we hang out with so many FI people and so many people from the community that we forget that we are not the norm. We are like a very small subset of people and everybody else is, is the norm. Like we just like, oh, of course you do that with your 401k. How do you not know that? It's like most people don't know that. <laughs> it's we, like- we had uh, a friend of ours who was in, uh, from Chautauqua. She's a, a, um, a, an air a flight attendant. But so a bunch of her roommates are also flight attendants too. So they all got laid off. And, uh, and, what they, and when they got their unemployment benefits, she just told us this yesterday. Yeah. The first thing they took with the $2,000 or whatever the Canadian government gave them is they went out and got Botox. One bought an Apple Watch with it, the other bought Botox, and now they can't pay rent. And I, 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 but they look that. good. <laughs> <laughs> They're the most attractive homeless people ever. <laughs> like, Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.